Today's speaker, with a name like Father Aquinas Gilbo, you can make two pretty safe assumptions. The first is that he's a native of Louisiana, and the second is that he's going to be talking about St. Thomas Aquinas, and they're both true. And in particular, he's going to be speaking today about the three advents of Jesus Christ um, and St. Thomas Aquinas's take on that. Now, Father Gilbo entered the Dominican order in the eastern province of St. Joseph in 2006. He currently is the prior of the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C., where he also teaches moral theology. He did his doctoral work at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland, um, also in moral theology, where he wrote his dissertation on St. Thomas Aquinas's doctrine of the common good. In addition to all of this, as if it's not enough, Father Gilbo also serves as senior editor of Alatia.org, which is, if you've never been there, is a Catholic cultural journal that's very good. So you should check it out if you've never been there. So anyway, I'm very pleased to have had him come down, and we're lucky to listen to him this morning for the two talks with a little coffee break in between. So Father Quines Gilbo, thank you. Thank you, TJ, and thank you, Father Newman, and all of you for the invitation to join you this morning. This is my first visit to the world-famous St. Mary's in Greenville. I hope you do know that this parish is world-famous. Uh, it's all over the internet. People talk about it uh, all over. And so it's uh, a, a great pleasure uh, to be with you. In fact, one of our student brothers uh, in Washington currently has roots here uh, at St. Mary's in Greenville. and so. Uh, it's uh, a double pleasure uh, to be here. Just second visit overall to, to South Carolina, first to Greenville. So thank you for the warm welcome. Everyone does have uh, a handout just to make sure uh, you do have one. It'll be helpful uh, on the one hand just so that we, as I read through some of these quotations, your eyes don't glaze over as you just listen to me. It's easier if you have the text in front of you. You can follow along. Plus, you have the advantage of taking this home with you, uh, and in all of those quiet moments that you have throughout the day, you can sit down and, and maybe review some of these texts, uh, especially those by the saint, St. Thomas, um, beautiful. Uh, and so we'll, we'll go through some of these uh, this morning. The theme that we'll look at uh, for this talk in the next uh, is O Come, Emmanuel, Aquinas on the three advents of Christ, the three comings of Christ. And so as we progress through the two talks this morning, that'll become clear just what we mean by that. So as the first season of the liturgical year, Advent begins the church's year-long meditation on the mysteries of the life of our Lord. Advent passes to Christmas, which passes into Lent, which passes on to Easter, which passes to ordinary time, ending with the solemnity of Christ the King. And then we begin the cycle all over again. We begin the meditation all over again, year after year. The prayers, the readings, the hymns of Advent ensure that we begin every year on the right intellectual and spiritual foot. trappings of the season put us 
squarely within the year-long meditation of the Lord by really placing the end of that meditation, the whole purpose of the meditation, before us. Why do we celebrate the birth of the Lord at Christmas? Why do we then celebrate the mysteries of his public ministry during ordinary time? Why do we celebrate, finally, the Lord's passion, death, and resurrection at Easter? Why do we do any of these things? Why is it that the liturgical year takes this shape? Well, it's because we await the one who was born, taught, suffered, died, rose, and ascended. We await him to come again. As Christians, we await the second coming of the Lord, period. That's what defines us in large part as Christians. Yes, we believe in the Lord Jesus. We believe that he's the Son of God incarnate. We believe in the Paschal mystery. But we don't believe those things apart from the belief, too, that he's coming again. And that as members of the church, as members of the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters of the Lord, we wait for him to come again. So this is why we meditate on and celebrate yearly, repeatedly, the mysteries of his first coming. This is why we celebrate Christmas every year, to celebrate the birth of the one whom we wait to come again. So, as the baptized, we stand between the two comings of the Lord, the two great manifestations of Emmanuel, God with us. To be Christian, therefore, is to hold the promise, the promise of the Lord to return again at the end of time. On the night before he died, Jesus told his disciples, he told the apostles, let your hearts not be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And when I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you also may be. A few weeks later, when the Lord ascended to heaven, the angels testified to the apostles regarding this return. Men of Galilee, why are you standing looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Years later, St. Paul spoke of the second coming of Jesus. For example, in his first letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul writes, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. In that same letter, St. Paul ties the celebration of the Eucharist explicitly to the Christian expectation of the Lord's return. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord, what, until he comes. 
To be Christian, therefore, is to, quote, await the blessed hope and the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ, as we say at every Mass. To be Christian is to stand in full awareness of where we are between the first and the second comings of the Lord. To be Christian is to celebrate with gratitude the birth of the Lord 2,000 years ago and to wait with expectation for the return of the Lord on a day and time that remain concealed. An imitation of the Lord, then, and of the angels, and of the apostles, the church has been careful throughout her history to preach the two comings of the Lord. The theme was prevalent in apostolic and also patristic preaching and teaching. This theme of the two comings of the Lord imbued the church's preaching in her early centuries. For example, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, and this is the first text that you have on your handout. We see how already in the church's early centuries, this theme of the two comings of the Lord is already quite refined in the church's preaching. Here's St. Cyril. We don't preach only one coming of the Lord, but a second as well, much more glorious than the first. The first coming of Christ was marked by suffering. The second will bring a crown of a divine kingdom. At the first coming, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. At his second coming, he will be clothed in light as in a garment. In the first coming, the Lord endured the cross, despising its shame. In the second coming, he will be in glory, escorted by an army of angels. For the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men, training us to renounce irreligion and worldly passions and to live sober, upright, and godly lives in this world, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We look then beyond the first coming and await the second. So St. Cyril in the fourth century already has this idea really worked out and well explained. He's helping us to see that on the one hand, yes, the Christian looks back and celebrates the coming of the Lord in the flesh. But that's not enough. Why do we do that? Why do we celebrate the birth of this one? Because, as St. Cyril notes, he promised is to come again and we await that coming and that second coming by the way is going to be much more glorious than the first and that's you see how he compares the two but he says when we properly understand where we are between the two comings of the Lord his first coming in the flesh his second coming in glory where we are now this shapes the way we live not only shapes our identity, but also the way we live out our identity as Christians, as brothers and sisters of the Lord. We wait, but actively, as St. Cyril says, renouncing irreligion, worldly passions, living soberly, 
uprightly, living godly lives in the world, as keepers of the promise and as witnesses, not just to his first coming, but also heralds, really, of his second coming. For St. Cyril, this is no novel teaching. It lies at the very heart of the Christian faith, made plain by the Apostle St. Paul. Cyril notes that in Paul's letter to Titus, the Apostle to the Gentiles remarks how the Christian believer lives between the two comings of the Lord. Again, for the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men, training us to renounce irreligion and worldly passions, to live sober, upright, and godly lives, awaiting our blessed hope. Cyril draws out the practical conclusion of the Christian's historical situation, living as we do between the two comings of Christ. We look then beyond the first coming and await the second. Cyril's teaching here puts a challenge before us, pricks our conscience in a certain way. We should ask ourselves, if this is true, then how do we wait for the second coming of the Lord? This question is just as live for us as it was for the apostles and the early disciples. Perhaps a more pertinent question for us is this, do we wait? for the second coming of the Lord. Is this an integral part of our Christian lives? Do I personally profess belief in the second coming? Do I hope in the good that it promises to me? Do I love the Lord? as one who will manifest his power and glory at the end of time. Does that inform my affection for Christ? Does that inform my devotion to the Lord, that he will come again in power and glory? Advent is the season in which we renew this aspect of the Christian life if it's lacking in any way. Like a mother reminding her children to eat their vegetables, the church in Advent reminds us not to forget this last aspect of the Christian mystery, or better, this last mystery of the Lord's life yet to come. Of course, awaiting the Lord's coming in glory is much more important than eating our vegetables. We should do both. But more so, we should be waiting for the second coming of the Lord. Not only does Advent recall this mystery for us, but the season also coaches us toward perfecting our waiting for the Lord's second coming. The church's posture and prayer during Advent is aimed at helping us to perfect our posture and prayer as we stand historically between the two comings of the Lord. This focus on the two comings of the Lord is what gives the season of Advent its richness. It's also what gives Advent its complexity, which is what I'd like to focus on for the remainder of this 
this first talk. Advent is the shortest season of the liturgical year. Rarely do we ever get all four weeks of it. But its prayer, despite being the shortest season of the year, is one of the church's most rich and complex. Unlike Lent, which more or less prepares us to celebrate Easter, Advent does not simply whip us into shape spiritually to celebrate Christmas. There's a deeper truth that Advent puts before us, and therefore a deeper grace that it offers us to enliven and enrich our friendship with Christ. Advent begins our preparation for Christmas by pointing our attention not backward to Bethlehem, but forward to the end of time to remind us of where we stand now. The readings and prayers of Advent help us to remember that the one whose birth we are about to celebrate is the very same one who will return again in glory. So from our standpoint now, Advent asks us to look in two directions, forward and backward. We look backward to remember the birth of the one whose return we look forward to with joy and hope. In other words, the goal of Advent is to remind us that Christ is all around us. He marks our past. He lies ahead in our future. He remains in our present. As St. Paul says, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As Christian believers, therefore, we look for Christ not only by looking forward, nor by looking only backward. We look for Christ all around us, through the whole of time. Advent begins the liturgical year by helping us to perfect this circular view. Advent helps us to look back at Bethlehem while at the same time looking forward deep into the future. Advent prayer then is rich and complex. We look forward in order to look back so that we might live well in the present, in the light of the past, but looking forward to the future. Advent prayer involves a lot of spiritual head turning. And if we're careful, we might suffer some whiplash. And we're only given four weeks each year to perfect this prayer. So Advent lays a heavy task on us if we take it seriously. When grasped in its full reality, Advent prayer can appear complicated. It may lose us and we can become frustrated. We might begin to wonder why our Advent prayer in preparation for Christmas isn't more like what we see in the culture, maybe even here in Greenville, South Carolina. Why can't we simply put up our decorations and get on with Christmas? We can do this, however. Many of us do. The seminary next to the House of Studies in Washington puts up its Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving.
if you go to the House of Studies now, we don't have a stitch <laughs> of anything up yet. Now, that's partly because we're lazy, uh, but it's also <laughs> because we try to keep some modicum of, of Advent observance. The temptation is strong in our culture simply to begin celebrating Christmas now, or the day after Thanksgiving. But if we succumb to the temptation, we deprive ourselves of the great truth and grace, grace of this holy season. The name that we give these four weeks, Advent, comes from the Latin Adventus, which means the coming or the arrival. In this holy season, the church invites us to rediscover the Adventus Domini, the coming of the Lord, as the central mystery of God's relation to man that shapes the whole of our life in him. Our Christian identity and vocation emerges from the fact that we are a people who, as creatures of the Most High God, are awaiting his Messiah. The whole of the Christian life, therefore, is marked by expectation, looking forward, waiting patiently, being vigilant, and preparing ourselves for those moments and times when the Lord manifests himself to us and grants us something of his life, of his truth, and of his love. Advent is the season in which we rediscover this aspect of the Christian life. And what is more, we renew ourselves as men and women of expectation, as men and women of hope, As Christians, we have a future. We are waiting for something. We're waiting for someone. We've been made to wait. And we know that the one who has asked us to wait for him does not make us wait in vain. He is coming. How then does the church lead us in Advent to perfecting our waiting? In these four weeks, the church puts before us the example of Israel, whom God formed as an elect nation whose purpose as a nation was to wait for the coming of the Lord, the first coming of the Lord. In Advent, we read principally from the prophet Isaiah who proved to be frighteningly accurate regarding the details of Christ's first coming in Bethlehem. But we read, too, from the other prophets, even the minor prophets, like Baruch, whom we heard from last weekend, to be reminded of how Israel kept faithful to the covenant, how it followed the law, and held fast to God's promises until the moment of Christ's appearance in our flesh. And Advent, the church reaches, reads all of these Old Testament texts in order to renew, shape, and inform her waiting, our waiting, for Christ's return. How we wait for something is governed by how, or by gov governed by what? we're waiting for. How we wait for something is governed by what we're waiting for. So let us close this first reflection by examining more closely the mystery that we await. What is the second coming of the Lord? 
As we confess in the creed every Sunday, the second coming represents the moment of Christ's triumphant return, when he will appear definitively as our savior and judge to pass final judgment on the living and the dead. So in pondering this mystery, St. Thomas Aquinas can assist us here. As a good teacher, he helps us to see just what we're waiting for. In his Summa Theologiae, St. Thomas speaks of the second coming of Jesus. He describes its necessity, first of all, as well as what we should expect it to include. This is important to know, because again, what we wait for governs how we wait for it. So let's look at this second text on your handout. In this question, Aquinas is essentially answering the question, why is there a second coming of the Lord? And why is there a second judgment? that he'll perform at the end of time. Of course, every soul is judged at the moment of death. But as Christians, we don't profess a belief or an expectation simply in that first initial judgment, but also a general judgment at the end of time. And that's what St. Thomas in this short text is explaining. Why that second coming? Why that second judgment? And here he explains Judgment cannot be passed perfectly on any changeable subject before its consummation. Sometimes these English translations can obscure <laughs> the meaning of St. Thomas even more than his original Latin, if you're trying to read it there. Basically, he's saying that you can't really judge something, pass final determination on something until whatever it is that you're trying to judge is done. You know, so in other words, you know, you don't pass judgment on a trial until the trial is finished. You don't pass judgment on a life until that life is finished. You know, you don't, uh, so that, that, that's the principle here. And what Aquinas is doing here is he applying that then to the whole of creation. That when Christ comes again at the end of time to judge the living and the dead, it's, he's judging the whole of creation, which is to say that there's no judgment that can be passed on the whole of creation until history is done. Until creation is brought to an end. And we see it from its very beginning all the way to its last moment, and then a judgment can be passed. So that's what he's saying here. Judgment cannot be passed perfectly upon any changeable subject before its consummation, just as judgment cannot be given perfectly regarding the quality of any action before its completion in itself and in its results. I mean, can you imagine we were just watching the Olympics, you know, this past summer, and let's say gymnastics and the floor routine, you know. Well, you spend the three minutes watching the floor routine, and then you wait until the judges' scores start coming in. Well, why? Well, because they're not going to start judging the floor routine until it's over. I mean, can you imagine they're sitting watching the floor routine all of a sudden, two minutes into it? I mean, the, the scores start coming in. The person isn't even finished yet. Again, that's just that's a silly example, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's an obvious one that, that illustrates Aquinas' point here. 
because many actions appear to be profitable, which in their effects prove to be hurtful. And this is really what he's wanting to get at. He's saying that, yes, all of us will be judged immediately at the moment of our death, which is to say to be judged according to the quality of our soul, of our love in that moment. But Aquinas says there's still something undone, that remains undone in our lives, even at the moment of our death. There are ways in which our actions, our good actions that we commit, but also the evil, the sin that we commit, the effects of those acts will continue on after our death. So that there's something about our lives that remains incomplete, even at the moment of our death, which is to say how it is that our lives continue to affect others after we're gone. And Aquinas is just highlighting that we need to be judged for that too, or at least how it is that our lives continue to affect others even after our death should go into informing how it is that we stand before God finally and forever. Yes, there's a judgment that can be passed at the moment of death just to say where we are in that moment. But what is left undone is the way in which our actions continue to affect others. And how is it that we merit that in glory or maybe suffer some kind of punishment or need some purification for that even after our death? And so Aquinas says, in the same way, perfect judgment cannot be passed upon any man before the close of his life, true, since he can be changed in many respects from good to evil, or conversely from better to good, from good to better, or from evil to worse, since the apostle says, is it appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. But it must be observed that although man's temporal life ends with his death, Still, it continues dependent in a measure on what comes to it, comes after it in the future. And here Aquinas talks about the various ways in which our lives continue to affect others even after our own death. In one way is it still lives in the men's memories. So how people will remember us and remember our lives and how that will inform the decisions that they continue to make in light of the example that we gave them. So our example outlives us, Aquinas is saying here. It still lives on in men's memories in which sometimes contrary to the truth, good or evil, reputa reputations linger on. In another way, in a man's children. So in other words, in the families that we establish, our lives do continue in a way, insofar as not only that husbands and wives with God create these lives, but in the parenting, the formation, all of the, the supplying of material and spiritual goods in the family that continues you know, to, to unfold in the lives of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And in another way, in a man's children, who are, so to speak, something of their parent, according to Sirach, his father is dead, and he is, as it were, not dead, for he hath left one behind that is like him. And yet many good men have wicked sons. And conversely, thirdly, Aquinas says, as to the result of his actions, 
just as from the deceit of Arius and other false leaders, unbelief continues to flourish down to the close of the world. And even until then, faith will continue to derive its progress from the preaching of the apostles. So Aquinas is saying that what we've said earlier, that our actions, how we live our lives, continue to affect others after. It's an interesting example he gives here of the false teacher Arius, the arch-heretic of the fourth century, you know, who taught really bad things <laughs> about Christ. And Aquinas is writing in the 13th century and saying, we're still dealing with this problem. People still teach these dumb things <laughs> about Jesus. But he says, also look, though, we're also believing and living off of the teaching of the apostles. So it can work to your benefit, too. So it's not just always negative. It's also positive. The good that we do in life can continue to bear good fruit for years, decades, centuries after we're gone. In a fourth way as to the body, which sometimes buried with honor and sometimes left unburied and finally falls into dust, Utterly. This is a little more mysterious as I was trying to think of this. What can Aquinas mean here? I think he's saying that how it is that a man lives his life informs some way the honors given to him after death. So in other words, how he's buried, what kind of tomb or monument may be given to him. And that too affects you know, future ages. So not only is it important to care for the dead properly, for the respect that we should give to the body, but Aquinas is calling to mind something that we may never think of. How we honor the dead affects the way that people remember them, and how people remember them then affects you know, how it is that people continue to follow their example, for the one hand, in good ways, or to reject you know, their, their, their bad example. And in a fifth way, as to the things upon which a man sets his heart, such as temporal concerns, for example, some of which quickly lapse, others which he endures. Just to say again, what we love you know, in life affect our actions. Those actions continue to affect those that come after us. So what's the point then of bringing all this to mind? Well, Aquinas brings his point to a conclusion. Now all these things, or submitted to the verdict of the divine judgment. All of these things have to go into how it is that on the last day we all stand before our Savior and judge as he passes judgment not just upon our life at the moment of death, but how our life has affected, in a sense, the whole of history. And consequently, a perfect and public judgment cannot be made of all these things during the course of the present time. So in, as long as this creation endures, and men and women come together in marriage and have children and families and the generations you know, endure, no final judgment can be made on any individual life. Therefore, there must be a final judgment at the last day in which everything concerning every man and woman, in every respect, not only what they do during life, but how their lives affect others after their death, shall be perfectly and publicly judged. Well, that should frighten you. 
in a good way. When you think about it, there's going to be a whole lot for which we're judged that, in a sense, we have no control over. But it's not that we don't have any control over it. I mean, there's not going to be any kind of tricks or injustice uh, in the judgment. But the point that Aquinas is helping us to see that as we profess belief in the second coming of the Lord, and as we await the final day and the final judgment, this is why. I mean, these are the elements you know, that, that are going to be involved. And it's good to know this. <laughs> because we don't just wait in joyful hope as you know, the coming of the Lord will be a good thing. Yes, it is that. But we wait in an informed kind of way, in an intelligent kind of way, such that it affects the way we live now. You know, so making sure that our waiting for the Lord contributes to the good judgment, not only that we hope to receive, but also that we want others to receive also. So the turning from sin that we're all called to in Christ is not just for our own personal benefit, but for the benefit of spouse and children and family and neighbors. Because everything that we do and how we live affects how others live, and we're all going to be judged collectively insofar as what we do you know, either contributes to or detracts from others following of the Lord and, and will be held responsible for those things. That shouldn't frighten us to death, but actually should just inform us to love the Lord more, <laughs> to love the good more, and to seek daily his mercy and his grace. And in this season, to reorient our lives to the kind of waiting and expectation that St. Thomas encourages us to undertake, which the church encourages us to undertake in this holy season. It's probably enough for now. <laughs>